without you telling me that you appreciate me because I already know. I still like to hear it. I'm human. (laughs) But know that I know. All right, we're going to, you know I'm a bit of a weeper when I get up here and talk, so I got to get that ready. Is that all right? All right. That's good. It's always weird greeting you guys when I come up here to talk because I start the day over here and, good morning, full potential ministry. And then I get up here and like, good morning, full potential ministry. I already did that, right? So it's kind of weird. But I'm so happy to be able to stand before you today and just uh, talk to you about the God that I serve. And uh, I did research and and share what I learned, and every, every time I've ever been up in front of you, I, that's, I've done it the same way. I've, I've looked in, around me, I've looked at myself, and I've asked myself, so what are you struggling with? What do you need? How can you grow? What do the people need? Then I go out and I do my best to find research on it, and I just share with you what I learned, you know? And uh, I think, it, I think uh, God's been pretty pleased with it so far. I hope so. And uh, I just hope that I can only grow. What I want to talk about today is a topic of discussion we've been discussing in the past uh, few weeks. Uh, Pastor has uh, brought it upon us to understand that uh, one thing we need to grow at as a church and as individuals is... Uh, that of evangelism. Yes, and uh, evangelism, uh, I'm sure we all probably know on some level, but evangelism basically means to uh, spread the word of God to your neighbor. Let your neighbor know who God is, what he is, his nature. So I want to talk about that. Because when he first mentioned it, um, I said to myself, I said, you know what, I said, he's definitely right. Especially when it comes to me, he was definitely right. You know, what can I do that's different? Who have I brought to God? Who have I brought to this church? And how can I be better at that? So we just talked about the dictionary definition of evangelism. It's spreading the Christian gospel by public preaching or personal witness. And it involves just basically converting people to Christianity. We Christians should take on this role in an effort to help people to seek God as well as to discover their real purpose in life. While some evangelists tell people directly about God, Others try to show God's love through their actions. Preaching is not something we're all called to do. Not everybody can come up and uh, put a half hour or 45 minutes or an hour together and stand up in front of people and talk about it. But that's not all evangelism is. You can go up through your words, through your behaviors, how you treat people, how you walk. That's evangelism. So each and every one of us can preach the gospel through our witness or our testimony. 
To be a witness to Christ is to demonstrate by our words, our actions, and our attitude the sacred mystery that we have seen, heard, and believe in our hearts about the Lord who has forgiven us our sins and offered us eternal life. It's basically paying it forward for the gift that God gave us through Jesus, right? So in contrast to the word, Christian witness is to be offered 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That's pretty, uh, it's a pretty tall order to stand up against, but it's what we should strive to do. Testimony is a powerful tool in sharing what God has done and is continuing to do in our lives. Our lives, do not be, our lives become not our own, and we are able to live accordingly to God's plan. It's important for us to realize that the value of our testimony to witness is an overall display of how God has interceded on our lives for the good and how he can and will do the same for all of us. So to witness is to come out and to walk it and to talk it, how you treat people, how you behave. You speak, God just kind of oozes from your person and gets people to really kind of wonder, and Akeem's talked about this, gets, if people can look at you and say, man, how can I have what that guy has or that lady has? That's witness. That's witness. That's asking people to want to draw near to God because you've drawn near to God. Amen? Among other things, we can witness by showing love, kindness, forgiveness, charity, just to name a few. Our testimony is our own personal story, meant to make a connection between the giver and the receiver. And I'll tell you, when I, when I met our pastor, he witnessed to me long before I heard his testimony. He was working on me for a long time before we really even got to really talking about the kingdom and what it did for him and why I should be here today. In fact, it was his witness that made me trust him, draw near to him, and actually want to hear his testimony. So I find that's a big challenge for probably all of us. I know me. Um, if you are going to really make your testimony be worth something, your witness has to be there first. Because if I'm not that guy that you can look at and say, man, God's moving in his life, anything else I say is just words. Right? Since then, God has gifted me with the need for a deeper understanding of him. He's helped me grow in faith, in love, in forgiveness, in charity, and much, much more. Now, I've given my testimony before, and I, I won't get into it uh, here today, but what I'll tell you is, is uh, before I really started drawing near to God, I needed a lot of help in all that, in faith and love. Big one, forgiveness. There are dead people that I didn't, wasn't forgiven charity, and much, much more. 
God did not, however, expect us to keep these gifts to ourselves, but to share with the world. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so, your light must shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. God doesn't want you to keep his gifts for yourselves. He wants you to share them. He wants you to share your influence. He wants your light to be seen by others. It seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Just go out and convince everybody how awesome God is. That's all I got. Go out there and do that. No, just kidding. So that would be easy. But what about the ones who've allowed life, their life to harden their hearts to the love of God? What about the ones who allow scientific theory to sway their minds about the power of God? And what about the ones that just cannot reconcile that there is a God beyond their physical touch or their mental understanding? What about those people? And this is what I would like to discuss today. I'd like to cover a few of the misunderstood ideas, circumstances, and even misinterpreted scriptures that the unbelievers commonly point to and say, this is why I don't believe. We got a big group of worldly people out there that are letting things like science social media, the world, take precedence over the nature of God. And it's our job to gather these people and to bring them to God. That's what God wants from us, to spread the gospel, right? But when we get these people out there that are so swayed by their upbringing, by their environment, by their educational systems, that they just refuse to see what you have to say. It's not about understanding or not understanding. It's about a full-out refusal to really accept. How do you get to them? God has given us the ultimate tool to educate, to guide, to shape our understandings of him. Does anybody know what that is? this thing right here All right Amen. he gave us that tool and it's there to guide, educate to educate us to guide us and to shape our understanding of him I've heard it said that the Bible covers three storylines from Genesis up to the Gospels it talks about God is uh, Jesus is coming and throughout the Gospels, it says Jesus is here. And then from the end of the Gospels through Revelation, Jesus is coming back. Amen. Right? That's, that's it. That's the main story. And everything, has, everything that's in this book 
compliments, discusses, or talks about those three things. Jesus is coming. Jesus was here. And then Jesus is coming again. Right? If we ever have a misinformed opinion, a question, or a disagreement on the subject of God's nature, His love for us, His plans for us, or anything, the Bible is readily able to assist. There isn't a single word in its pages that isn't meant for our good or our growth. Sometimes that's a hard thing to sell. Because there are disbelievers out there that want to point to things in the Bible and say, how can that be good? That's not right. What, is, what, what about that? Right? So that being said, the Word of God was meant to be sought after. Not read like a magazine. To the unbeliever or even the new believer, the Word of God may seem confusing or even contrary to what is deemed in our minds to be good or wholesome. We'll be digging into some of that a little later. But I came across a great instruction in the Daily Bread on what is needed when you are studying or trying to interpret its words. So if you are... Um, reading the Bible, and you uh, have a, you, you can't quite understand what it's about, what it is, this is a basic uh, understanding or instruction on how to, how to really study the Bible or really anything to really see what it's all about. When you're studying the Bible, step one is observation. What does the, what does the word say? What do the context say? It tells us to collect as many facts about the context as possible. Don't take anything for granted. Ask questions. Who, what, when, where, how. What logic indicators can be marked in words such as therefore, then, and, also, but, however, and nevertheless? What recurring words indicate a main idea? What elements, arguments, or illustrations does the author use? So if you have questions... Dig into every single word and try to understand its context. Which brings me to step two, interpretation. What does the text mean? Only then do we ask, what does the author mean by the words as they relate to the words that precede and, to, and that follow? What was his intent? Observe the context. A word is best interpreted by the way the author uses it. And if you can do that, the scriptures will come alive with the pulse of the author's own heart or intent. Really try to dig in and understand what the words mean. Because we all know that we can read things, we can read things differently. Right? I can read something and understand it one way. You could read something and understand it the other way. But really, God means his word in the way he means it. So it's our charge to dig into the context and really try to understand what God means by what he says. And step three, when you've done all that, step three is the application. What does this text mean to me in my life? Only after discovering the meaning of a text in its own time and place should a student ask, what does this mean to me? Distinguish between cultural facts 
and timeless principles. I've got a scripture later on that's going to talk about that. Focus on the main ideas. What are the primary issues of the heart? What does this say about my relationship with God? And as we answer these questions, the significance of the word becomes more and more clear. So now we have our Bible, we have our study guide, and we're ready to change the world, right? Maybe, maybe not. How should we go about it? How should we approach these people who look to oppose us? I believe each situation is probably different, but hopefully the end result is the same. Before I move forward with that, I want to talk about raising questions. Have you ever had questions as you're reading the Bible or as you're thinking about your life or the world around you? Have you ever really questioned why would God do that? What does that mean? I, he's supposed to love me, so why am I going through this? You ever had those questions? I know I have. But your love for God, I think he, he expects you to have questions, but he also expects you to seek him for the answers. Because if you have questions, that means you're actually paying attention to him. Right? You're not just floating along doing you. So have questions. I have lots of questions. But seek the answers. Right? If things are going on that don't look good in my life, it would be real easy for me to say, why would God do that, and then just give up? That's not what God wants. Because he even said in his word, rain will fall on the just and the unjust alike. Right? So you're going to have trials, you're going to have struggles, but... It's up to you to seek God to find out where the end of that is. When will the sun come up in the morning? Whenever I'm faced with an idea, a circumstance, or a scripture that gives me trouble, I like to make sure the following remains true. There are four things here. God is real. God is love. God is faithful. And God is final. Amen. I believe these are the four pillars that make up the foundation of the faith. Any building that's going to stand needs four cornerstones that make up its foundation. I don't know a whole lot about construction, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> but this church at its four corners hold the cornerstones or the pillars. And if one of them fell, the structural integrity of the church would be compromised, right? I think God's the same way. I think he has four pillars that we can lean on to make sure that we understand that God's kingdom is real and he's real. And it's God is real, God is love, God is faithful, God is final. And I believe these, are the four found, the, the, these make up the foundation of the faith and they will stand up against anything contrary to God. That's a pretty big claim. But I believe it's true. Any problem you got out there, you can trace it to its root. And the pastors talked about um, finding the problem at the root. If a tree is sick, you don't fix it at the leaf, you fix it at the root. Amen. Right? 
So any problem, if you trace it back down to its root, I believe you can trace it back down to an understand, misunderstanding of whether or not God is real, God is love, God is faithful, or God is final. One of those four pillars you're having to struggle with. So the four pillars of faith just discussed are what I truly believe to be universal truths. Now, I already warned my brother about this. I'm going to get mathy and sciencey for a little while. And I told, I told old Mike here, no matter how boring I get, don't fall asleep on me. Right? He's like, why are you calling me out in front of church? So I believe they're universal truths. A universal truth is something that remains true regardless of the circumstance. God is the real creator, the first cause of the universe and all that it holds. That's a universal truth. God's the creator. Some scientists, especially ones who denounce creation, would disagree. Some would say that the universe is endless, and so is time. And I think we can display quite simply that time has a beginning. So that's the big question. God cannot be the creator of everything because, every, because the universe is endless. Well, I believe that the universe has a beginning. It has a creation. Every creation has to have a creator. So therefore... God's the creator, and I'm going to get into that here in just a minute. We can agree, okay, so I want you to put your, uh, don't put your TV screens up, put your, uh, your chalkboards up, because we're going to get a little sciency here for a second. We can agree that there would be no today without yesterday, so I want you to draw a big line, a little slash right here, that's today, right? A little slash right next to it, that's yesterday, okay? Everybody got that in their minds? Okay, we can agree that there would be no today without yesterday and no yesterday without the day before. Amen. So, today, yesterday, day before. This proves that each day is dependent on the day before. And if time is endless, there would never be an initial day to build upon. If I took yesterday away, how could there be today? Does that make sense? A little bit? I know. Sciencey. So how could we build how could we have today without the days that came upon it, before it? And if every day before it was endless, we would never have an initial day or a foundation on which to build on all that. So to exist, we need three things. Harriet's going to like this. We're getting into physics now. We need matter, we need space, and we need time. To do it, to have, and to be anything, whether it be me, this Bible, or the building we stand in, we need three things. We need space, we need a time in which to occupy, and we need matter in which we make up. Right? Since we just proved that time has a beginning, what about space and matter? 
Which came first? Space, matter, and time can all be tracked back to its time of creation, at least logically. We weren't there. So if they were all created together, and if it's true that you cannot create something from nothing, as science says, the creator must be outside of space, outside of time, and outside of matter, and the creator of all things. So I'm going to go back to this Bible. The Bible has matter, it has a space in which it occupies, and it has a time in which it's occupying itself. So if I, if I was the creator of all things and I could take away matter, the Bible would no longer exist, right? If I could take away the concept of space, the Bible would have no space to occupy in and the Bible would no longer exist. If I could take away time, same thing. There's no time in which the Bible to occupy, so therefore the Bible will not exist. So that tells me that time, space, and matter must coexist together for anything to be anything. So there cannot be a single origin, one above the other. They had to exist at the same time for the same purpose. So to say that they do that, and to say that you can create something from nothing, you cannot create something from nothing. So the creator must be outside of space, outside of time, and outside of matter. And he is the eternal creator of all things, and God is real. Amen? Amen. Didn't bore you too much, did it? Okay. Next I want to touch on the next universal truth, God is love. Now we're going to get mathy here for a second. In math, 5 plus 5 equals 10. That's a universal truth. It's just true. That's the way it is. But we know that if 10 is the desired answer, that there are many different equations that we can use to get to 10. 9 plus 1, 8 plus 2, 7 plus 3, so on and so forth. If we use decimals, we could go on forever. We who know God know that God is love is the answer we can depend on regardless of the question. So just like 10 is the answer, God is love is the answer regardless of the question. Amen. So if I have something good in my life, I have a great marriage to a great woman. If I wanted to track that down to the root, I would say God is love. Right? If I had a negative thing to say, if I tracked it back down, I guarantee you, eventually, I believe the answer would be God is love. So when I was in school, merely knowing the answer wasn't enough. We had to show our work. This ensured that we weren't guessing and that, the new, that we knew the path to the correct answer. Can we use the practice to, find, to prove God is love in the fact, is in fact a universal truth? I think we can. So the question, why would a loving God deny some of us heaven? That's the question. You wouldn't think God is love would be the answer to that, would you? 
Your logical mind would not think that. But let's show the work. God doesn't deny us heaven. We deny ourselves heaven. God created man to have something he can love unconditionally and love him back the same way. To get that, he had to give us the opportunity to choose. And here's an example. This one's for the lady folks. Think about having a male friend, and we'll call him, I don't think there's any Freddies in the group, so we'll call him Freddy. You got a male friend named Freddy, and he decides to let you know that he's in love with you, and you need to tell him that you only think of him as a friend. Okay? So Freddie comes to you and says, I'm in love with you. I know we've been friends forever, but I can't stop my feelings. I'm in love with you. And you just tell him, I love you. You're my friend. I'm already married. Sorry. So you and your friend go through this a few more times. He just keeps coming back and keeps letting you know, I love you. We're just friends. One day, Freddie comes to you and tells you, I've decided I can't stop loving you, and whether you like it or not, you love me back. What would or should you do in this situation? Kick him? Call the police? Right? Freddie's out of control. If your friend really loved you, he would respect your feelings and he would leave you alone when it came to that, right? Even though it is against your best interest, God is too much of a gentleman to force himself on you because God is love. Right? So we showed the work and we realized that God, the question of why would God deny us heaven really translates to he loves us too much to make us stay in heaven and we deny ourselves, right? So my next question, I can't believe how, how could God love a fallen sinner like me? You're going to find those people that are going to come up and they're going to say, I'm so far gone. I can't believe this is true because if it was, I would be better than I am, right? So here we have some scripture, Romans 8.35, and then uh, we'll go to 37 and 39 through 39 after that. In Romans 8.35 it says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ, who loves us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, 
nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is more powerful than anything in heaven or on earth. When you accept Jesus' invitation to begin a relationship with God, you are secure in his love forever. There is nothing powerful enough to separate you from God's love. There are lots of things you can do to draw yourself away from God's love, but God will never separate himself from you. Even when things are difficult or you feel separated from God, it's not because God stops loving you. The truth is that God will never stop loving you, no matter what you do, because God is love. So I think we've proven right here that God is love is a universal truth, and it is the answer regardless of the question. Next, I would like to discuss the universal truth of God is faithful. Out there in the world, there's a belief called deism. In deism, people think that God created the world, and then he just walked away from it all. He just created us, and just walked away, and left us to fend for ourselves. In this belief system, the logical conclusion is to doubt God's faithfulness. I mean, I would. I thought that God just left me alone. Why would have, that's not faithfulness. That's the opposite of faithfulness. But God is a faithful God. And it reads in Psalms 145, 13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. It doesn't say the Lord is faithful in the words that unless you're not behaving yourself or his works unless you are a pain in his butt. He doesn't talk about that. He says he is faithful in all of his words and in kind in all of his works. To those who love the Lord... The Lord promises to remain faithful even when we lack supreme faith. The following scripture is a common story that unbelievers look to to argue that their case, that their case that this God of power, love, and faithfulness is just a story. But actually, it's a story of how God showed up faithfully to protect and provide for one of its prophets. And this will be found in 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24. We covered this in our young adults uh, youth group uh, last week, a couple weekends ago. And I thought it fit here. So, It's actually a story that when I was uh, first learning, first reading, I came across this story uh, of the she-bears. That's what I like to say, the story of the she-bears. Have you ever heard of this one about the she-bears in the Bible? No? I'll cover it. So in First and Second Kings, there was a time when the children of Israel left slavery from Egypt and they were a nation until they became enslaved by Babylonia. There's a time in there 
where many kings ruled the land of the children of Israel. And that was the book of 2 Kings, Chronicles, all of that. So all these uh, kings, uh, they uh, put forth prophets. Now what I always thought prophets meant were like um, speaking the future, talking about uh, a direct connection of God's word, um, what, what you had to look forward to. But another big job of the prophets, a prophet was to go around to the communities and he was to um, basically uh, police people's actions and let them know that what they're doing was not really godly, or it was, and to warn them against what they were doing, to bring the actual expectation of God to the community. Now, if you are a, uh, a doubter, if you're one that wants to do you, you're going to want me coming around telling you what God thinks about what you're doing? Maybe not. But that's what the prophet Elisha was doing. He was given the mantle from the prophet Elijah, and he went to do the works, and he went, to do, uh, to, he went up to Bethel. So in 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha came upon some trouble on his way to Bethel. It reads, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. And we talked about how in those times, prophets were sent to different cities, not only to prophesy, but to hold people accountable and warn them against their transgressions. In any area that may not be the most righteous, prophets more than likely were not always welcomed with open arms. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy. They said, get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, he looked at them, and he called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went to Mount Carmel and there returned to Samaria. That was a rough book for me to understand, a rough story. My thought was, are you trying to tell me that Elisha came to Bethel, half dozen five-year-olds came out of from nowhere, started teasing him about being bald, Elisha got mad, cursed him in the name of the Lord, and the Lord sent a couple of she-bears out to kill five, five or six five-year-olds. How can a loving God do that? That was a big question. That, a lot of people that have questions in God's nature, his intent, his faithfulness, they look at this story the same way I did. How does this work? It just seemed contradictory. It seemed unbelievable that a God would cause two bears to maul a group of children for making fun of a man for being bald. Well, first of all, now this is where getting into and studying the Word and using the study guide comes into play. The King James Version translates the term as children. The Hebrew word can refer to children, but rather more specifically means young men. So he really wasn't talking about a half dozen five-year-olds. He was talking about some young men, 15, 25 years old, young adults. So the NIV quoted here uses the word youths. Secondly, the fact that the bears mauled 42 
of the youths indicated that there were more than 42 youths involved. A lot of people think there was close to 100 people. So let me backtrack it. Elisha is coming into Bethel, and all of a sudden, a group of 100 young troublemakers surrounded him and started mocking him. Can you imagine if you had, if you were walking down the street in your local town and all of a sudden a hundred people that wanted to do you harm started surrounding you? It's kind of a scary thing, right? So this was not a small group of children making fun of a bald man. Rather, it was a large demonstration of young men who assembled for the purpose of mocking a prophet of God. So next we go into the phrase, go up. The phrase grow up likely was a reference to Elijah, Elisha's mentor, being taken up to heaven earlier. These youths were sarcastically taunting and insulting the Lord's prophet by telling him to repeat Elijah's translation. So the story upon research is starting to sound a little different. So in summary... 2 Kings 2, 24 is not an account of God mauling young children for making fun of a bald man. Rather, it's a record of an, of an insulting demonstration against God's prophet by a large group of young men. Because these young men were around 20 years of age, so despised the prophet of the Lord, Elisha called upon the Lord to deal with his rebels, the rebels, as he saw fit. So Elisha knew that he wasn't going to be able to do anything about this, so he gave it to God. So the Lord's punishment was the mauling of 42 of them by the two female bears. Notice it doesn't say mauled to death. The definition of the word maul is to be beaten and bruised. So the bears didn't necessarily kill anybody that they went in they smacked a few of them around and probably injured them pretty good so if uh, they killed like 42 of them how many of them got away so that's the big question the penalty was clearly justified for to ridicule Elisha was to ridicule the Lord himself the seriousness of the crime was indicated by the seriousness of the punishment the appalling judgment was God's warning to all who would scorn the prophets of the Lord. So by applying the study skills here earlier, the story, the story goes from one of shock and awe to a story of God looking out for one of his own. For God is faithful. So that really turned that story around for me. And um, a lot of stories you can look at in the Bible and you can really question God's intent, God's faithfulness, God's love. That's what we're doing with the young adults here, and I'm having a good time with it. Last but certainly not least, let's talk about the fourth pillar of faith. God is final. So here, I'm going to pick on my Uncle Dean. We're going to do a little thing here. Okay, what I want you to do, Dean, is I'm going to ask you to make some shapes with your fingers. I want you to do that, okay? Can you do that? Not yet. I didn't start yet. 
Okay. You're the authority on making shapes in the air with your fingers. So make a triangle. Okay, good. Make a square. Okay. Make a diamond shape. Now make a circle. Now I want you to make a circle, but make it straight. You're the authority. Come on. Can you do it? Why not? Because a straight a straightness is a contradiction of the circle, right? To be a straight circle would contradict the nature of being a circle. Make sense? Thank you, Dean. Everybody get a hand for Dean. The unbeliever will try to argue with the question, can God lie? Can God create a boulder so big that he can't lift it? That's one of my favorites. Or my favorite, God cannot be all-powerful and all-good because if he is all-powerful, the creator of all things, this means he created evil, which means he cannot be all-good. You ever had someone like that? Giving you the knowledge, Right? So when we, ex when we ask if God can lie, it's not about what he cannot do. He is so final, whatever he says just is. A big question on people's minds is, did God create evil? My belief is, evil isn't a thing that is created rather than a byproduct of the absence of of good. If you think about it like this, think about a hole. A hole cannot exist unless the dirt is removed. Right? Darkness cannot exist without the absence of light. And therefore, evil cannot exist without the absence of good. And God told Adam, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. My belief here is that to die, in this sense, may not only mean a mortal passing, but a separation from God as well. But Adam and Eve did eat of the fruit. And since God cannot contradict himself and go back on his word, Adam and Eve were sent from the garden. And even so, God loved them so much, he made a way for Adam and Eve and all of us to reconcile through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So I think we can say God is final. Right? So, um, so that's what I came up with today. I hope it helped you. I hope it was interesting. I, I had a good time getting to it. So I thank you for your time, and God bless you. Thank you.